Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You really just have to read yourself and know what you're capable of, right? And I think that that little voice that says, we should do this, we should do that. I think that's really destructive because it is too loud. It negates everything that we actually are feeling and what we actually need. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. I'd like to share with you this review from a listener called Tiana Ricci on the Apple Podcast platform in Canada my home and native land. It's entitled Love, Love, Love. Since my diagnosis four months ago, I've listened to a number of ADHD podcasts and all the others have nothing on Katie's podcast. Katie is so real and honest and she selects guests who have very interesting career paths and I'm glued during the whole hour every week. Listening to these women openly discuss their challenges and how they manage their ADHD has helped me feel validated and is allowing me to accept and appreciate my own journey. Thank you, Katie. Well, thank you. I get very insecure about the fact that I tend to ramble on about what a hot mess I am. So I appreciate knowing that there are some of you out there who actually enjoy it. And I appreciate you and your feedback and your support more than I could ever say. It really keeps me going week after week. And it makes such a big difference in getting this podcast noticed and found by other women who are starting to connect the dots in their own life and could really benefit from hearing these conversations and knowing that they're not alone and that they're not lazy, stupid, or broken. If you're a listener of this podcast and you have been helped by these conversations, a wonderful way to say thank you is to take a moment to leave a review or even just hit those five stars. If you'd like, you can pause right now and do it. I promise I will wait for you. Okay, here we are at episode 104, in which I interview Dr. Kelly Stecker. Dr. Stecker is an OBGYN and co-founder and president of Patient Care Heroes, as well as the governor of the 7th District of the American Medical Women's Association, and advisor to multiple other companies focusing on patient and staff safety and mental health. She has won the Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine's Top Doctors Rising Star Award for the past three years. She was recently runner-up for the Sharp Index Physician Wellbeing Leader of the Year, and she also won a Silver Anthem Award. She is also the author of the book Delivering, a powerful personal memoir meant to empower women, mothers, working women, and women working in healthcare. Dr. Stecker and I talk about rejection-sensitive dysphoria, RSD, and what it looks like starting in childhood and then following us into adulthood. We also talk about emotional bandwidth, developing boundaries, and professional burnout, especially in healthcare. I've put a trigger warning on this episode because we do talk about sexual abuse and suicide, so if those are difficult topics for you, you might want to skip this interview. All right, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Kelly Stecker. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I guess we'll just jump right in. I'm really curious to hear your diagnosis journey. Were you were you diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood? And if so, what was happening in your own life that led you to kind of think I should really look into this? Yeah, so it's interesting, because I think those of us who are about 35 and older, our parents were a little bit in denial about things growing up, right? So anything mental health related, so depression, anxiety stuff, anything autism or ADHD or anything neurodivergent, my parents were very much of the mindset that you can just figure it out you don't need help. You don't need therapy. You don't need coaching. You don't need medicine. That was just kind of what it was. 
And so I remember early on being told that this might be something, or maybe it's anxiety, right? Like I think that a lot of people with ADHD are misdiagnosed and that's a huge issue that we go through, especially having a diagnosis of anxiety and things like that into adulthood and then realizing potentially you actually have ADHD. So I know we all kind of have a different journey on that. But my parents, of course, were the typical boomers (laughs) and didn't think any of that happened. And then just decided that maybe I ate too much sugar, right? That was like the the typical thing that people are told, right? And of course, I had a cousin with ADHD who was on medication, and I saw different ways of treating it around me. However, it was one of those things that I just thought there was something that was kind of broken, right? So I, I was the type of kid who, and I see this in my daughter, so it's kind of an interesting thing, but I, I was very critical of myself. I was very hard on myself. I was very perfectionistic. I um, definitely have rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And so for those who don't have that, you are very sensitive to any number of things. But if I wasn't perfect, then I wasn't masking it well, then I wasn't, you know, living up to my expectation. And so I went through my whole life like that. Of course, I went to med school and residency. And because you are put in a box so often with ADHD, and your achievements aren't sometimes typical, you try to find this validation elsewhere, right? So my academic achievements were my validation. And so as I was going through life, and realizing the things that I struggled with, I had started seeing a therapist, because I think, you know, hey, I think everyone should have a therapist, or a coach or a trusted colleague or something. You know, and I think that when you're married, sometimes you don't always know how to communicate with your partner. And so I think that that was, you know, one of the initial goals of this endeavor. But the more I read about things, I was like, you know, I really do think that I still have this ADHD diagnosis. And so I talked with my therapist and she's like, well, yeah, I mean, I've got that for the last four years. (laughs) So so it all just kind of came together and things started making sense, like things that we do to cope on our own that is very much because of ADHD that we just don't put together until we officially have like an actual diagnosis. And I think it's actually quite liberating to be able to say, this is the thing that I have versus feeling like something is broken, right? So I felt like, well, why can't I just do X, Y, Z things, right? Like, why is it so frustrating for my executive function? Like, why do I get overstimulated? Why is it harder for me to transition between things? Why do I have to have all these lists and cross things off and do all these things to keep myself organized? Because my sister doesn't have to do that, right? And the more I thought about it, I realized my dad probably has it. It just, you know, was in denial. And so that really helped me on my journey of being able to have the diagnosis and then realize this is this is better ways that I can cope with these things. Yeah. I feel like there's also, when you're talking about perfectionism and and that high expectation, I feel like, is it the messaging that we receive as children from our teachers, especially, right? That idea of like, you know, I saw this a lot in my report cards, like Katie is bright, but, and then there would be a list of all these deficiencies that I would then internalize and really kind of try, you know, to think of my, you know, I would think of myself as that version of me as opposed to the version of me that was highly competent, right? And and I feel like we have these, we end up having these high expectations of ourselves in all areas, right? And and like, I remember talking to a a resident who when she was diagnosed with ADHD, she was also diagnosed with dyscalculia, the mathematics uh, learning disability. And she was talking about like, I'm in med school, what is wrong with me that I can't you know, calculate a tip at a restaurant. And, you know, this idea that that you set this bar for yourself, right? Where it's like, I'm in med school, so I should be able to do everything. You know, it, have this high expectation of ourselves in all areas. And I'm like, is that specific to a neurodivergent brain to have that like high expectation in all areas? Or is that something that we internalize because of the teachers drilling into us that we need to be consistently good in all areas? Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the RSD stuff too, right? So I 
got those things all the time on report cards, right? Or, you know, you talk too much or whatever, right? Um, Because I would get done with my things quickly because it was just kind of like my go, go, go and done and hyper focus and get it done, right? Because that actually served me quite well in medical school. But then as a child, then, okay, well, why isn't my friend Brian done with his thing? Because I would like to hang out with him. And so I would help my, you know, best friends with their homework, because I wanted them to hurry up so we could like, go do other things. And even in college, my best friend, since the day I walked onto my college campus, um, her name's Megan, she's still my best friend. I used to do her homework for her, even though I was not in those classes, because I just needed to do something and needed to get her done. So we could go move on with something together. And so I ended up getting a psych minor because I enjoyed the classes she was taking. And so then went and actually got the credit. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, I know. It's really interesting to talk to women diagnosed in adulthood. And yes, I relate to all of that about, you know, having the parents who, who just didn't even really understand what neurodivergency is, right? Obviously. Um, so, but that idea that like so much of this, so much of ADHD is thought of as character flaws. And so it's all, I realize how much like my struggles would somehow reflect on their parenting. And so they would take it as like, you know, you really need to get your act together. You need to do this. Like, I remember my parents being so frustrated because I had two brothers who, who got straight A's and did really well. And I, did when I didn't, it, they were like, this is not how our family operate. Like there was such a sense that it was a reflection of their parenting because, you know, so much of this is thought of as, as like character flaws. And well, and I thought that this was like my personality, right? There's a lot of things that are ADHD that I just thought were quirky personality things, right? So like I am the person who has piles, right? So I have piles that are organized in my mind. I can pick out a piece of paper. I know exactly where it's at. I know what color pen it was. I know what the scoop is. If my husband took the pile and tried to do something with it, I mean, he probably put it where it was supposed to be, but I would literally lose my mind because I don't know where this one paper I need for this one other thing. And this research thing is because I knew where it was in the pile, right? I just thought that was me. I didn't realize that that is such a common thing with people with ADHD until I started doing research on it. I know, right? I, you know, I think, you know, my husband and I have been together for 20 years. And I think that single that was one, when we moved in together, that was probably the one thing we argued the most about. Maybe temperature of the house was this other way. I can't (laughs) temperature of the house, my impulsive spending. But one of the big things that we argued about and really had to learn to kind of live together was that idea of my organized chaos and how important it was for me to have piles of things that I could remember, you know, and like trying to explain to him that when you take everything and you're being quote unquote helpful and putting everything in a closet or in a drawer or something, you're actually destroying my system and how important it is for me to like see things. And and I never had a language for that until my diagnosis. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting seeing it in a child too. that, right? So I'm a mom, I have two kids and my daughter is like mini me and has all the same symptoms. And so we had gone out well, her room is very much in the piles, right? It's organized chaos. And I get it. And her dad is very frustrated with both of us. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. But, you know, you see some of that perfectionistic rejection sensitivity stuff with all the things she does, right? Like if she's not going to be the best at something, she almost doesn't even want to try, right? So if she's taking piano lessons, and she's playing piano, and she can't immediately get it, she's angry at herself. And so we have put her in therapy to work on coping skills because she will, you know, hit herself in the head because she's so frustrated. And I remember I used to pull on my hair when I was upset with myself when I was a kid, but that affects relationships with friends, right. And relationships with like coworkers and everyone else that you have in your life, because you just can see it developing. And when we went out for my husband's birthday, a couple of weeks ago, we went to a fancier restaurant, which we never do, especially with kids, right? Like it just never happens. And so we're sitting there and I could tell she was trying to be so perfect, right? She's sitting up straight. She's got her napkin. She's got her silverware. She's doing all the things. And then she accidentally spilled water, right? And 
I knew because of my experience that was going to be a trigger for her because she was so disappointed in herself that she was not perfect when she was trying to be perfect. And so she immediately started crying and the waiter comes over. It's like, Hey, no big deal. I dropped a whole, you know, tray the other day, you know, trying to be the cutest, most wonderful guy ever. Right. And he cleans it up and it's all good. But she was so fixated on that moment, which was before we even ate that she could not enjoy any of the rest of the dinner because she was so mad at herself that she had screwed up. And it was just interesting watching that unfold because as soon as the water spilled, I knew exactly where her brain was going to go because of the experiences that I had. And so in one way, I think it's great that I had that insight because my husband just does not get it. He's like, what is the problem? Like, come on, like, not a big deal. It's not, I was just going to say the worst thing you can ever say to, to somebody with ADHD, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. <laughs> like get over it. Like what is the issue? You know, and some people are, are better at learning and using that to gain understanding. I think, you know, her dad is just not quite that insightful, right? Because he, has never been around people who have these lovely traits <laughs> except us. So um, it just is an interesting experience, but I'm glad that I have what she has because it definitely helps me be a better mom for her. You know, I think it it's nice to have one parent that has the same diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of like when my kids are really upset. Um, one of my, one of my pet peeves is when people, when, when a kid is upset and an adult is like, it's okay, it's okay. It's not a big deal. It's okay. And I've never understood why that bothered me so much. But for me, I was like, I want to validate that it is, this sucks. This moment that you're in right now. Yes, you're right. This is terrible. This sucks. Like that. I feel like that's what a kid needs to hear. Or at least that's what I need to hear. And like it. It's amazing how, as a, in adulthood, how many times we kind of negate a child's gut instinct and gut reactions to things by, you know, telling them that they're wrong or that they're what they're feeling is not right from anything from like stranger danger, right? Sitting on Santa's lap, all of those things that we do to kids, go hug that crazy old man, <laughs> you know, uh, just because he's a distant relative, like all the ways in which we kind of cancel out a child's instincts. And then, you know, we wonder why we grow up to be such... Yeah, I, <laughs> anxiety. yeah. Well, and I really think that that's the root of, you know, you're too sensitive, you're too much or too whatever, right? Because we're reinforcing that your feelings and your emotions in the situation are not valid, right? So you're overreacting. And so that's what they grow up thinking. That's how, how I, you know, when I was raised, that's exactly what I thought that I was just too much of everything. And so then that translates into how you interact with potential partners in the future too. And I never want her to think that she's less than or not good enough or whatever for whatever, you know, guy or girl that she has in her life. Cause I don't want that kind of toxic dynamic to play out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. The, that idea that there is even a wrong way to feel things for sure. Oh, parenting. Such, so, so fun. So how old are your kids? They're seven and nine. My daughter's seven. Oh, those are my favorite ages. I really love it. I always like to say where I'm like, they're old enough to be self-reliant, but still young enough to not be self-destructive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what was really a wake up call for me is she, my daughter was bullied at school and everything else. And we got her official diagnosis, you know, of course, then, but when she crossed over to that internalized, almost self-destructive kind of behavior, that's when we were like, I, I mean, I personally couldn't believe that it was already starting at seven, you know? So it's a different journey for everybody. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So wait, so, so was she diagnosed before you were? So I was like as a kid and then it kind of like disappeared, right? Because no one cared. I mean, you know how it is. You outgrow it. Then I saw it in my daughter and I was like, okay, I for sure still have this. So it was kind of like in tandem with my daughter. So then I was talking to my therapist who was like, oh yeah, well, yeah, you have have that. And so we were like, I guess, kind of officially official at about the same time this year. Mm, Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, My kids were both just diagnosed over the summertime. And we had a similar experience because both of my kids are really, really 
spend a lot of emotional energy keeping it together all day long. And so my son would literally walk through the front door and just burst into tears. And like, and you know, but his teacher on all of the teacher reports for the uh, assessment was like, he's a great kid. He's wonderful. He's no problems. He's so well behaved. And I'm like, we see a very different. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and I think that when my daughter started getting bullied for some of this stuff, so I have more of the hyperactivity in my head, right? Like meditation is not like an awesome thing for me. My daughter has the constant moving all of the time. She's my little gymnastics girl and can't sit still, right? So her teachers were able to recognize that. They got her a special chair. I mean, they've been fabulous, right? So the school has done a great job with it. However, then she became the target of some mean girls in class. And actually, it's interesting. A former work colleague of mine's daughter came up to her and just decided to call her ugly. And, you know, so she was just bullied by these kids in class. And that really kind of sent her down this dark spiral of what's wrong with me and more of the sensitivity. And so, of course, you know, it takes forever to get into some of these neuropsych testing and everything else, right? So it took, I mean, over six months, I think, to get her into be seen. And so then we were able to move forward from that pretty quickly after that. But it definitely is a journey to get the right pieces of the puzzle together. God, that's good. I want to segue then into empathy, because I feel like, like, as a parent, when your child is going through that experience, like, God, I feel like, I hate kids. <laughs> like, you know, you just want to go to school and you want to beat up the kids who are bullying your kid. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we have such intense empathy, right? For in those experiences. And so I think neurodivergents tend to have an abundance of intense empathy. And I think it's also why so many people in care professions, see where I'm going with this, end up with intense empathy, Um, you know, social work, healthcare. I feel like I interview so many women who, where it makes sense, right? Where it's like you are end up in these professions because from a genuine sense of wanting to help people, and then you end up completely burnt out. and not knowing what to do in that situation. So I know it's something that you talk a lot about, just burnout in general in healthcare from a neurodivergent perspective. Like, do you feel like your ADHD, has it helped you more in your field? Is it more of a help or a hindrance? I think it makes me a really good physician. Okay. So we deal with emergencies amazingly. When I am in a situation and an emergency, I can see all the 150 things that are going on at the same time there's clarity, you get hyper-focused, you're in the zone. That's an amazing thing, right? I think it's challenging because I was in a situation where I was being bullied quite badly. And the issue with me being me and most of us ADHD people and RSDs and everything else, that is really going to cut into our soul, right? So the culture of healthcare in general is one of significant hierarchy, don't step out of line, do what I say, not what I do, all of this stuff. And so for me, I was trying to fix different things right in the system to try to make sure the patient safety was dealt with and staff safety was dealt with and everything else. And so for on my standpoint, I was trying to do all the right things, right? That doesn't fit in a system because they just want you to shut up and sit down and not make waves and go with the flow and never step out of line. Right. And so when you start asking questions, you become a problem person, even if it's an innocent type of situation. And I think that most of us also have a very strong sense of justice that us neurodivergent people all do. And I think that is how I live my life. Like I want things equitable. I want justice for people who are hurt. And so again, I think that makes me a really good physician for my patients. However, it makes me not stand down when we have situations where, in my case, we had a system that didn't want me to report um, an alleged sexual assault that a patient had made. And of course, I'm going to do what's the right moral, legal, ethical thing for that person. And so we get ourselves into these situations because we really have a strong sense of duty and loyalty and justice. And I think they're amazing qualities. However, it can get us into these traps with existing structures, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the hospital fired you, right? Isn't Yeah. 
this was not that long ago. You're still going through this, right? Yeah. After I reported uh, my boss for bullying, following this whole thing, he was allowed to fire me within that week without any sort of change of behavior, discussion, nothing. And he said that it was his right to fire me. And it was because he could just fire me for no cost, despite the fact that I was seeing the most patients, had the most awards, was the most successful OBGYN and doing the most community outreach of anyone in our group. So when he fired me, I said, well, why are you firing me? Was there a patient thing? No. Was there a staff thing? No. Was there a safety thing? No. They said, it's because of the breakdown of relationship between leadership and you, meaning him and I. And I had literally just reported him for making my life a living hell and picking me apart. And I guess the system decided, you know what, why fix it and got rid of me? Or I guess he made that decision ultimately, which I think is a little bit crazy considering the district attorney came out and said that I did the right thing moving forward with reporting the allegation. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's been like um, a lot of news coverage around this case. So is he being held accountable or what's the latest? It's still, still going. I don't know how much you can talk about this. So I wasn't sure if I could even bring it up. I was warned that it could take four years. So in my brain, for me to survive this, I have to go, okay, here's my checklist of that. I'm going to compartmentalize it and it's going to be in a box. And when I get things from attorneys or whatever, I will respond, but I have to like put it almost like outside of my body or I could fixate on these things. Right. So sometimes I will, like we all do kind of go down the dark path and ruminate on it and be like, this is crazy that this happened. And where's the justice, right? Like you're trying to have it make sense in your mind and it's not going to make sense. Right. (laughs) And so my sister's like, you just have to decide it's not going to make sense. And that's, that's all you can do. And so I'm, I'm trying to kind of leave it, leave it over on the side of the road. (laughs) I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know, I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference health. Help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. It is interesting to think about like, emotional bandwidth, right? And and I, I think a lot about my own bandwidth when it comes to so many things like boundaries, family, social media, but even just like my bandwidth around, you know, the political climate in this country. And this is a theme that I bring up ad nauseum on this podcast, because I'm there, you know, the question that I always come back to at where I'm like, is this ADHD? Or am I just an angry feminist living in the, this country? Right? Because <laughs> It could be. <laughs> right? 
because I just feel like it's too much, right? And I'm just like, I feel like, you know, is something else going on? Is this because so many of us are getting diagnosed, especially since the pandemic, where I'm like, there is a lot of small t trauma happening around what is going on in healthcare, what is going on for just women and the Supreme Court and like, you know, politics, like it's just never ending racial issues. Like, it's just a shit show. It's a dumpster fire and it just never ends. Then I'm sort of wondering, like, are we mistaking this and thinking it's ADHD when when this is actually trauma response to being a woman? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And and here's the thing. I, I don't, it could be both at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, especially with depression and anxiety, you know, that COVID, if you've had COVID, you do have a higher rate of mental health too. Right. And so when you think about it, it's all of these things intermixed and I've had trauma in my life. And for a while I thought maybe it was like PTSD, right? Like are these, because a lot of the symptoms do feel very similar. Um, And to talk about the political climate, you know, with the work I do and the advocacy I do, the horrible thing about my ADHD and the great thing about my ADHD is I say yes to everything. And I think everything's great and I need to own everything, right? The problem is then you're overcommitted and then you have this overwhelmed moment of, oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do? It's amazing. Somehow I have pulled it out so far, but I went back to school. I went, I'm going to Northwestern Law School for a master's of science of law because I want to be able to work on some of these issues full time. And I think my ADHD has given me that gift and, you know, cross to bear, I guess, because you get so passionate about things that it thrusts you into these situations. Oh, I know. Right. And I think that's what I was meant about bandwidth too, where I was like, I feel like sometimes I have to go into that. You called it compartmentalization, which makes more sense. I'm sort of was like, I feel like it's almost like a dissociative state. (laughs) Right. Like, you know, I was trying to explain to my family, we had this, we had planned this trip to go to Maine at the end of June and we went to Bar Harbor. I've been, I had planned the whole trip because I always plan the trips. You know, I'm the one who's like, we can't sit still, you know? So I'm like, every day I have to have a whole checklist of all the things we're going to do and where we're going to go and all the things. Like I had been looking forward to this trip for so long. And the night before we were leaving on the trip, the Supreme Court announced, you know, it came out that they were going to announce the overturning of Roe v. Wade the next day. So the morning we left, June 24th was the same day that they overturned it. And I just, it like, I just couldn't. I just couldn't enjoy anything. I had such a hard time. And I was trying to explain, like, people were like, how was made when we got back? And I was like, it was terrible. Uh, I could not get over how unhappy I was in order to enjoy and be in the moment. And like, I don't know, it just felt like one of those moments of like, I was trying to explain bandwidth to somebody and they, I just, they were like, their eyes glazed over. They had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) But I, you know, I feel like there is this almost like this mental health survival need to like figure out how to compartmentalize in those moments where we get super overwhelmed by things that are out of our control in that way. Right. I don't, I don't even know what I'm talking about at this point. Yeah. I relate to that. Yeah. I mean, I was coincidentally off that day because I took a series of meetings to work on advocacy things for reproductive health, but I don't feel like I would have even been like really in it, right? I was very glad that I was not doing anything patient care related because I was maxed out. You know, like I think that people who really care about these issues, probably all of us were maxed out. I remember, I mean, my sister, she's not neurodivergent and she called me crying, you know, like we're both like looking like a disaster on the phone, right? So I think it just is more of an exponential issue for those of us who have that passion and that empathy. Yeah. And then I think also like my instinct is never to like get involved in the fray of social media. And I don't know if that's an age thing. Like I'm, I'm about to turn 48. So I sort of feel like I'm like the Gen Xer who just stands back and just stays quiet and doesn't say anything. Cause I'm just like, I am not getting involved in this argument. Uh, but like my instinct is never to like get on angry and get on social media, because that's another thing where I'm like, that adds to the deterioration of my mental health so quickly that like, my instinct is always to just like, shut it off, shut it all off and go away. 
and shut it down. But then I'm like, is that being irresponsible? Be- you know, am I being escaped? I don't know what the word is, but like, I don't, I get, then I get all wrapped up in like, what is the appropriate public response now with social, now that we have social media in the mix where I'm like, what is my role? What is my job as a human in terms of the public discourse <laughs> when it comes to these issues? Cause I'm just like, I can't, like my mental health cannot handle being open and like talking about it. But I, there's just been so many moments over the last few years where it's been really important to like join the narrative. And I think I'm probably not alone in like feeling really conflicted about like, what, what is my role in terms of being vocal? I mean, obviously I have this podcast and I say whatever the hell I want on it. So like, it's not like it's a secret what my politics are, but I just sort of feel like, I don't know, there's those moments where I don't have the bandwidth to react in the way that a lot of people are able to do. And I appreciate them for that. Well, and I think, you know, it's day by day, right? I mean, each of us are on our own journey, whatever that may be. And some of us have sick kids, some of us have a marriage that's falling apart. Some of us have, you know, and so I think you really just have to read yourself and know what you're capable of, right? And I think that that little voice that says, we should do this, we should do that. I think that's really destructive because it is too loud. It negates everything that we actually are feeling and what we actually need. It's that people pleasing, that RSD, the trying to fit in. That's really the toxic thing that sits inside of us that we can't overcome sometimes. I think it's really empowering when you can dissociate a little bit and know yourself well enough to know how this is going to play out and figure out where you want to go from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I find uh, the the concept of boundaries has been fascinating to me since my diagnosis, <laughs> and and you know masking and boundaries. Um, how really, really difficult it's been to impose them. Yet at the same time, feeling so much happier and healthier as a result. Okay, so I want to talk about your book because I could probably ramble for for you know the rest of this interview. But I I really want to ask about your book delivering and. What was the impetus to write such a raw memoir, personal memoir, and kind of share some of your own stories? What, but you wrote it, I guess it's been almost two years at this point. No, it came out last year. Yeah. But the whole book writing thing is a process, right? right so. Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote it shortly after COVID started. And I guess you know, hearing the disconnection between everyone and hearing my patient stories and how they feel so alone with different things. Right. I mean, I hear about abuse and I hear about assault and I hear about miscarriages and I hear about like all of the things, right. Because I take care of women through their whole life. And whenever I have someone that comes in to talk about a miscarriage, for example, everyone feels alone, right. I don't think that we're doing enough to share our stories so that people feel supported and, like they actually have a team behind them because especially during COVID, like I said, everyone was just kind of disconnected. People weren't seeing each other. People weren't talking on the phone as much. We had a lot more depression and especially my postpartum patients had a super high rate of anxiety and depression, especially my first time moms who are just kind of like in this, you know, shell trying to deal with this baby. And so I wrote this because I wanted shed some light on some of these issues and talk about my experiences and be like, you know, if I can talk about my stuff, you can talk about your stuff. Like there's nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed about because this is life. This happens. And the other thing that I wanted to stress is we carry a lot of the shame for things, right? So in my book, I talk about when I was sexually assaulted and it took me until adulthood to be able to discuss this, right? Like I told my husband when we were early dating, kind of like a very abstract (laughs) version, like, here's a disclaimer. But I mean, really, I didn't even tell my sister, who's my best friend until years later, I had told my mom who didn't want me to report it because she was running for political office at the time. However, it's, it's interesting, because we carry so much of that shame and guilt. And it is so freeing when we can actually realize that it's not our fault. And we're just humans living our lives and we're not alone with the situation. I was also uh, molested as a child from a, by a family member and I've, I've spoken openly about it, but I often 
found like a lot of the work that I've had to do in therapy has been the trauma around the reactions of people, not the actual molestation or these, you know, the sexual assault. It's been the way in which I was treated by trusted family members, especially my parents and their reaction to the assault. And just like the idea of that, it was that the implied guilt, you know, and the, the victim blaming and a lot of the idea of like, you know, we don't want to bring charges against this family member because we don't want you to have to deal with the guilt that you will feel if we bring charges upon this family member. And then as an adult being like, what the fuck was that about? <laughs> right? Bro, I mean, I can't imagine as a mom now saying things that my mother had said to me. Right? The blame and the games and the how it reflects on her, that was the only concern. And then it just didn't happen. So it's like, okay, here's the recipe of how this is your fault. And it's going to reflect on me if you do anything. So we're going to pretend like it never happened. And when I look at my kids, I mean, if they told me one iota of that scenario, I'd be calling the police. We'd be having a little chat. I'd be calling my attorney. I'd be figuring out what the next steps were. Like I would burn it down for them, you know? So I just, it's hard for me. But again, we are more passionate empathetic people by nature in the ADHD world. And so am I feeling that because of that trauma and the reactions to it? Or am I feeling that because of this neurodivergence? I don't know, right? So it's it's an interesting thing to know. Did the trauma shape us? Or did these other things shape us? Right. And I feel like I have I have yet to meet a woman who doesn't have some sort of sexual trauma in her past. And then it's like, okay, how do we even start to untangle what of this is, is, is this ADHD, the result of trauma, or is this, is this genetic, you know, you know, or one of my, you know, one of the pet peeves is when a woman goes to her doctor saying, I think I have ADHD. And the doctor says, it's probably just childhood trauma masking as ADHD. And I'm like, what even is that? Like, what, what are you t- how is that helpful? Yeah, right. I mean, there's still OBGYNs in my area who won't treat postpartum depression and anxiety, right? They just, it's the whole patriarchal, oh, it'll go away, whatever. I've had patients transfer to me saying how a a male physician just kind of minimized their symptoms and wouldn't deal with it, right? So we still have many physicians who are not willing to have the important conversations. Oh my goodness. See, yeah. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food and my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one coaching is right for you. Again, that's women and slash coaching. And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, 
then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Okay, tell me about Patient Care Heroes too, because I feel like that's such a lovely organization. When did that start and what is the sort of main MO behind it? Yeah. So during COVID, I talked to a lot of people around the country to kind of see what the needs were, what their experiences were. And so the January after COVID started, right? So it'd been like 10 months-ish or so, or nine months. um, I called one of my friends, Naveen Goyal, and I said, do you want to do an organization with me? (laughs) Because he's a CEO of a company and he does this stuff, right? And I said, this is what I want to do. And so I wanted to be a support team for healthcare workers. And I use that broadly, right? So I started my career as a CNA. When I say healthcare workers, I mean physicians, nurses, CNAs, medical assistants, whoever, right? Like I'm not going to you know, pinpoint one particular group. But I wanted to be kind of a security blanket for people. I knew that the rates of physician and nursing suicide were going to go up, and they have. I knew the rates of burnout were going to go up, and they have. I was worried about people leaving and putting more pressure on the remaining healthcare workers, which of course all came true. And so I wanted to provide mental health resources for people, a safe place to kind of gravitate to, to talk. Um, And of course, because the needs were so much for that, we didn't really expand much more than that at this moment. But the goal is to provide resources for a variety of other things down the line, right? So um, we just haven't got past the mental health component because that's been such a immediate need for people. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, how do you even begin to advocate for yourself? Like, okay, so so say there's like an incredibly burnt out physician who's listening to this episode right now, and you're talking about that kind of top down, stay in line culture, right? That's in healthcare. What advice do you even give to to healthcare workers who they're just totally burnt out and, and running on fumes and overwhelmed. And I think most of us are not about leaving, right? And just because we're ultimately tired of being treated in a certain way. I mean, first and foremost, if you're having negative thoughts, you're thinking about suicide, just quit your job. I mean, honestly, you will find another job, your job will replace you. If you are in such a toxic environment that you're thinking about dying by suicide, you need to, you know, call your sister, your friend, whoever it may be, and you need to get out of that situation. Because honestly, in my last work situation, I was being bullied so much, you just get to this dark place. And you you feel like, okay, well, I'm just going to die in this job. Like I'm going to either stroke out or I'm going to something bad's going to happen because it's so overwhelming. And so I think that people don't see a way out. And the other thing that I think is so interesting in the medical culture is, we are judged if we leave a job and go to a different job, right? So you're almost seen as like damaged goods, if you will, like, well, what's wrong with you? You couldn't suck it up in the system. Like, what's the problem? Well, it was pretty terrible. But now everyone's thinking, okay, well, what's wrong with her that she couldn't just fall in line and do her thing. And so that is what a lot of us have playing in our mind. And really, who cares? Just get out of the situation. If you're struggling, we will help you we just need you to be safe. That's the number one thing, right? However, I will tell you being in a different program, being in a different system, being with different leadership sometimes is all you need. Because I really thought, okay, 
do I want to be in clinical medicine anymore? Or do I want to leave clinical medicine? Do I hate my job or do I hate how I was treated? Right. It's hard to dismiss those things. It's hard to separate the two things. And so for me to really decide, okay, I still want to be in clinical medicine. I took a variety of different jobs around the state of Minnesota and I started enjoying clinical medicine again. And I will tell you, it was so interesting being in like five different systems and each one of them was better than where I was. Like they had good leadership. They actually cared about people. Um, They were there to support you. The partners were awesome. And I thought, okay, that was just a thing. That is not all the people. It would help me put things in perspective because when you are in the dark hole, you think, oh my gosh, what if I leave and it's worse? And that's what I hear all the time too. What if I leave this job and it's actually like more abusive and worse schedule and everything else? And that's not going to be the case. If you're that miserable, it's not going to be the case. You just need to leave. And I know a lot of my colleagues and friends have left and they're infinitely happier. And the thing that I have learned about myself is I'm probably just a private practice person, right? Because I can actually make the change in my group and everything else. And so because of everything I've gone through, I've made myself back to private practice. And I think that that's just a healthier environment for me because I actually am not seen as a random cog in a wheel and have no say in what happens to my patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, with the great resignation that's happening right now, do you feel like, what do you think is going to be the outcome? Because there's, you know, there's all of those doomsday articles that are like, you young people, you're going to regret this. But as, as somebody who's self-employed and has quit in anger from many jobs over the course of the last 20 years, I'm like, I'm like you, I'm like, yeah, change, you know, get the hell out of there, get a change of perspective. You'd never regret it. But I can also see that, you know, this, like, you know, why there's that fear of like, oh, maybe this isn't the greatest idea. Well, I think that they do that to make you afraid, right? They're trying to take away your power. And I, I really believe that not everything happens for a reason. I won't say that because I can go on a whole tirade about medical things that I do not believe happen for a reason. But I think in our work careers, things tend to fall in place that need to fall in place. And so for me, this situation really was the push I needed to leave a toxic situation that I was miserable in. And, you know, now I'm using that to get another degree and work on some of these issues and everything else. And I really think that when we're trapped in these situations, we can't see ourselves or the situation clearly and getting other people's perspective on it is really critical. Um, I have some really good friends here. Michelle Chesovich is another physician and Shereen McConnell. And they were like, okay, you're miserable. It's probably good that you're leaving regardless of how it happened, because this was literally killing you. But when you are the person, you can't see it. And so I have no regret about my situation. And I really don't think anyone who quits because of abuse or toxicity or maybe malignant partners or whatever the case may be, I don't think you're going to regret it because it really is an opportunity for you to grow. Even if you go, well, maybe I overreacted or maybe that person wasn't as bad. You're still growing and you're still learning about yourself and you're still figuring out what you want in your future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said. I'm curious. So I asked you about, we, we talked about your childhood and even kind of what you love about your ADHD, at least in the medical field. You're, oh, that's what you're reminding me of. Like uh, when you were talking about starting patient care heroes, I was like, with ADHD, we don't have hobbies. We start companies. <laughs> well, and a lot of things at one time, right? Like I joined a bunch of boards and I'm going back to school and I'm joining a new practice, you know, but that's when I'm my happiest. Like if I have slowed down to where I am unable to engage and do other things, then I'm like very depressed and non-functional. You know what I mean? I think that you can easily go to that place where you're just done. And I think that in the political climate and the COVID world and all that kind of stuff, I definitely have had those days where I'm like, I can't do anything. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And and not only that, but like I can sort of absorb, you know, I'll, I'll take on new projects. And then once those projects become kind of almost like automated or they become like, they sort of move into the background of my brain where I'm still doing those things. I haven't taken on 
it's not like it's less work. It's just like easier work. So then I take on something new that's part of the like interest dopamine part of my brain, right? So I'm like the podcast parts, you know, there's a lot of the podcasts that in the beginning, there was like a really steep learning curve because I was like learning how to edit and do all this stuff and, and which microphone should I buy, right? And so now I'm like, okay, the steep learning curve is gone. It's become an easier effort. So now I'm like, I'm also, I'm like, okay, I think I should go back to school and get another degree. (laughs) So that's what I'm doing now. I'm also going to grad school because I'm like, you know, now I'm bored. What, what, what is the new thing I'm going to (laughs) do? Only ADHD people get that though, because my husband just thinks I'm crazy. (laughs) So that's a whole nother thing. (laughs) I know, right? Well, I've been making fun of my husband because he, you know, I've had so many jobs over the last 20 years and he's really worked at two companies since I've known him. And he just had his 10 year anniversary at the company he's currently at. And so he got the catalog, which I've never gotten because I've never lasted that long anywhere. Um, but he got the catalog that was like, congratulations, you've worked for us for 10 years. Let's celebrate. And there was like, pick out your choice of the, a juicer or free luggage. And he chose a Fitbit. <laughs> And I mean, great, you know, Fitbits are great. But I was like, really? Like, is this supposed to be a celebration at this moment where you get a Fitbit in the mail for 10 years of service? That's kind of a big downer, to be honest. I know, right? I know. But I was like, I'm not jealous in the least. Uh, so I've been making fun of his his anniversary Fitbit. Now, I do want to ask you if you could rename ADHD to something that's a little less confusing. Um, is there? Have you thought about what you might call it? It's such a complex thing. Until you really know the different parts of it and the ways it affects you, it's very hard to almost classify it. You know, I think that there could be more types than there are. For me and my daughter, for example, the RSD and the feeling stuff, and that is a more heightened part of my life than a lot of ADHD people. So I do think we would be better served to have more segments underneath ADHD, just so that we can have more clarity around how it's affecting different people, because that might, in some ways, help bosses and work and help you explain things to coworkers, um, just so that you don't feel like such an outlier, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for the I think the vast majority of us come to understand ADHD through the emotional elements and of uh, the not only the RSD, but the emotional overwhelm and how that relates to or the emotional dysregulation and how that uh, relates to the sensory overload, right? And and that for me was like a huge light bulb moment. And none of that is in the DSM. No. <laughs> well, even if we said something like executive functioning, dysregulation, and brain hyperactivity. I think that that would even be better because people just have this stereotype of a little kid who's basically like, like my daughter sometimes is right. And so I don't think we do enough to communicate through the diagnosis what it is so that people can understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also then it comes back to like the degree, like how much is it affecting you, right? I think there's such an emphasis in the DSM about struggle and lifelong struggle and evidence of struggle. And it's like, how do we even begin to unpack evidence of struggle when you have kids who are like holding it together and then they come home and they burst into tears? So I'm like, where's the evidence of struggle there in terms of the classroom? Nowhere. But, you know, we're all getting diagnosed with anxiety (laughs) because we're barely holding it together. So whether your physician says there's no evidence of struggle throughout your childhood, you're like, yeah, because I was really good at masking. And then I went my room and I cried. I mean, what? (laughs) I know, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I've just, I've been in therapy my whole life. That's, you know. (sighs) Well, I always appreciate having conversations about how complicated it is. It's very validating to me when I talk to other, like, very clearly intelligent women about how how complicated and confusing it is. I'm like, okay, at least I'm not alone in that, you know, where, because I still feel like, what am I missing? Am I missing something? Because I feel like the more I talk about it, the less I understand. And so I do, I I find it very comforting when other women also don't really understand (laughs) where, where, you know, what even is going on here? What, how do we even begin to kind of unpack as, as Emily Donahoe always called it, the, the uh, bowl of fish hooks, right? 
<laughs> trying to figure out what is going on here. So, uh, well, I appreciate your candor and and all of your you know amazing things that you're doing for the healthcare community, and was just so pleased that when you reached out uh, to have because I'm so thrilled to have a conversation with you and get to hear your own story. So, thank you so much, Kelly. Well, thanks so much for having me. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.